Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Work in Progress, the personal productivity science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Work in Progress. And on this show, we unpack everything to do with personal productivity and especially how you can maximize it. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we're going to be uncovering how harnessing the power of decision making and problem solving can help improve our productivity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elena Talboy. Dr. Talboy is an experienced research scientist in reasoning, problem solving, judgment and decision making. She also earned her PhD in cognition, neuroscience, and social psychology from the University of South Florida. Dr. Talboy is currently a senior research manager at Microsoft as well. Hi, Dr. Talboy. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, Joanna? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, Before we get into everything, would you like to introduce yourself a bit more with a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, so uh, as I said, I'm Dr. Talboy. I am an expert in reasoning and decision making, uh, particularly when uncertainty and numerical information is involved. So anytime you have to make a decision with numbers, that's something I actually enjoy investigating. So um, I currently work at Microsoft and I'm a senior research manager in their security organization. That is amazing. I'm super excited to jump into this topic. I feel like decision making is one of those things we can all continue to learn about. So I hope we get into some good stuff. Yes, looking forward to it. Perfect. So we're just going to get into our Have You Met Dr. Talboy section. So I'll just ask you some get to know you questions and we'll be on our way. So my first question for you is, do you have a favorite book or anything you're reading right now? Oh, favorite books. Um, so one professional book is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, okay. It is one of the primary reader reading books for people who get PhDs in decision sciences and decision making. It's a phenomenal book. It's actually really good to read through and see just kind of how we make decisions and how we think in both fast ways and slower, more deliberative ways. Um, so that's a professional book personal book, Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. It is just poetry. It is such a good read. I won't spoil it, but absolutely worth it. Okay. I'll definitely add that one to my list. I've got a long list now, the amount of episodes I've done and just collecting (laughs) everyone's recommendations, but I love poetry. I feel like I don't read that enough. What's it about? If you don't mind me asking But So it's a story about, (laughs) it's, it's a bunch of smaller stories that come together to make a bigger story. Um, it's romance and pirates and fighting and magic and owls and there's a bee, a key, and a sword. <laughs> um, 
it's like reading Neil Gaiman if he were a more poetic than he already is. I love that. It's giving me like Harry Potter and really like enchanted. Is that like the vibe? <laughs> yep. Ooh, so. Okay. I will definitely get onto that one for sure. Uh, beautiful. So moving on, do you have any movies that you love watching or even a favorite? Um, ooh, lots of movies. The first one comes to mind, I just watched the Barbie movie last week. Oh my God, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was It was a great movie. Um, yeah. yeah, so favorite movies though, I, I gotta say anything Star Trek. I am a huge nerd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm super embarrassed, I have to admit, I've never watched a single Star Trek movie, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad with that kind of stuff. I really should diversify, yeah. I just don't. Um, how was the Barbie movie? It was good. It was it was more real than I was, I think, prepared for. Yeah. Um, so I was, I had just taken my son a couple months ago to see the new Mario Brothers movie, and so I expected something like that. That was very lighthearted and funny, and had a couple songs in it. And the Barbie movie had a few moments like, "Whoa, this is real. This is like an on point." synopsis of reality right now and it was very surprising i was impressed yeah no i feel like that's the best way to describe it it was just so real and i've grown up with like you know the traditional barbie movies and just being so used to animation like everything just being animated like super light-hearted but yeah it really was a different take yeah i agree Awesome. And podcasts. We're on a podcast right now. Do you listen to podcasts? I'm like, <laughs> I, so I do. I got to say, Welcome to Night Vale is an old okay. comfort. It's What's just that one? A great. Oh, it's a supernatural storytelling. Um, it's just fun and kind of out there and makes you rethink how you look at the world around you. Oh my, you got me at Supernatural. That sounds so interesting. <laughs> I love anything Supernatural. I've watched the entire Supernatural TV series as well. So like, oh, I'm obsessed with anything true crime, Supernatural, you name it. I love it. So complete opposite. I've never watched Supernatural. <gasps> you have to. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> But um, that's awesome. How long have you been listening to that podcast for? Oh, goodness. Oh, years, years, wow. years. Uh, and I, I pick it up and, you know, I'll listen to it for a couple weeks, turn it off for a couple weeks, listen for a couple weeks. There's so many good episodes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can imagine. I will add that to my list as well. <laughs> um, moving on I want to ask you if you have a favorite role model I mean like a famous role model it's a bit of a tricky question so even just anyone in your so, life that is influential oh man there's there's so many brilliant women that I look up to and my partner and I, I am almost a little embarrassed about this my partner introduced me to Margaret Hamilton um, who's the reason oh. why we have software engineering. And I started reading her history and learned about what she's done. And like, we wouldn't have gone to space if it weren't for her and her team. She's just done amazing things in her lifetime. And I, I can't help but look up to her. Oh, that's an amazing one. Um, so you know her? I have not met her, but 
you know, maybe, hopefully, one day. We'll see. One day. That's the dream. Maybe awesome. she'll listen to this podcast. I don't know. I mean, maybe she could. Our reach might be Margaret Hamilton. Who knows? There you go. Um, amazing. Now, I think we can jump into our interview questions if you're all right with that. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So my first question for you is, how do you define problem solving from the lens of productivity? Yeah, yes. So... Oh, two key terms there. So the first one being productivity. Um, and you can think of that in as a simple ratio of your output over your input. And that's how productive you are. Um, and then problem solving. Problem solving is a bit more of a wider term because you can think about problem solving from an individual perspective, team perspective, even an organization perspective. My research focused from an individual perspective. So the definition I use for problem solving is the process a person goes through to find a solution to a particular problem or an issue. And there's a bunch of steps involved in that, um, but that's the general definition for an individual problem solving. Amazing. And can you explain like the relationship between problem solving and decision making? Yeah, so problem solving it is that process of figuring out how to solve something. So you're identifying what the problem actually is first, and then you're gathering relevant information, you're analyzing it, you're piecing together potential solutions. Um, and then once the solution is identified, your solution is selected, then you move to decision-making, which is actually the act of making a choice. And so in decision-making, it's the process of making a choice between two or more options. And so that involves, again, analyzing options, but it's more that choice piece of it. Okay. So problem solving generally comes first. Mm -hmm. In okay. most cases, yeah. But there are times where you may not even realize you're problem solving. Some of the choices that we make are completely unconscious. You know, there's research that suggests we, we make over 35,000 choices a day. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's a lot of decisions that have to be made. Yeah, for sure. There are definitely a lot of decisions we don't even realize we're making. So, but then there are times where we're conscious of the fact that we are solving a problem and that there are decisions to be made. Do you think there's more pressure surrounding those situations? When we're aware of the decisions we have to make, yes, that it takes more cognitive energy. It takes thought and deliberation. And so you're actually expending effort to make that decision when you're conscious of it. You know, that's a great point of that book with the thinking fast and slow. You know, some of those decisions are just automatic. They're made in the background. They're done with heuristics simply. Um, but it's those deliberative decisions that we spend effort and energy on that takes more from us. Yeah, for sure. And what do you think makes decision making so challenging and arduous, mm. for example? Oh, that's a good question. So the thing about decision-making is we have to live with the choice after, you yeah. know? Um, some choices are easy. You know, am I going to have cereal or am I going to have toast for breakfast? And and that's a pretty straightforward choice for the most part, you know? It doesn't really um, have any serious negative consequences associated with it normally. Just as long as you eat something for breakfast, you're good to go, right? Yeah. Um, but then there are some choices where it takes a lot more out of us. You know, if we get a job offer in a different city and suddenly we have to uproot ourselves or our family to go 
take a chance. You know, there's an element of risk in that decision making that really taxes us. Yeah, for sure. And can you walk me through decision fatigue then? Yeah. So decision fatigue is the culmination of what happens when you have to make too many decisions. Okay. Um, you know, this is you become effectively impaired because decision making is a muscle. You know, you think about a, a bicep or a quad or you know, any muscle in your body. If you overwork it, if you tax it too much, that muscle will just give up and I can't keep doing it. Your decision-making skills, same thing happens. It's a muscle that you exercise throughout the day. And at some point, you're going to hit a point of fatigue and you just simply cannot make any more decisions. So what gets us to that point where we've got that many decisions to make that we're fatigued by it? Oh, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons that this can happen. You know, you work in high-stakes situations like an emergency room, medical situations, those take a lot more energy and effort. Um, it could be that you know, you're know you the person who handles the mental load for your entire household. If you haven't read that comic, highly recommend reading The Mental Load um, because it talks through what contributes to this idea of decision fatigue is that you have all this information that you manage throughout the day. You have to reason through all these problems. You have to figure out all these solutions. And then you also have to go and make all of the choices that result from all of that. And, you know, you get to a point at the end of the day where you're just, you sit down on the couch and you kind of zone out for a minute because of all the things you had to manage today. And you're already kicking in and thinking about all the things you have to manage tomorrow. And that is a point of decision fatigue. It can also be referred to as ego depletion. Okay. And would you say that overthinking contributes towards this? That's a good question. You know, I am not sure on the literature for that. So we could theorize or, you know, hypothesize that overthinking is over-exercising that, that mental muscle. So the rumination is contributing to the fatigue and kind of withdrawing any reserves that you have. So in a way, I could see that being related, but I'd have to go to the literature and verify. Yeah, amazing. Um, and what are some common signs of decision fatigue that individuals may experience in their daily life? So there's three kind of classes of uh, these attributes that you'll see after you experience decision fatigue. So you have um, these physiological aspects where you just you simply are so tired, you're so physically drained because of all the mental effort that you've been expending. You might have behavioral um, attributes that come out. You may have cognitive attributes. So if you've ever seen someone who's just worn out and tired and kind of zoning or or maybe they're very irritable and grumpy and, you know, uh, some people just stop making choices. They just hit the state of uh, complete emptiness and they have nothing left to make a choice. And so it's kind of falling into those three buckets of physiological, cognitive and behavioral. Amazing. And what are some effective strategies that we can use to battle this? Yeah, so there's a couple things we can do in terms of effective strategies. We can, uh, first and foremost, take a break. 
And this is this sounds so self-helpy and so pop psychology, <laughs> you know, but but really there's some wisdom into just taking a break and allowing yourself a moment to to rest and recharge before you have to make those decisions. Another thing you can do is you can sit down and go, okay, what are the decisions I have to make today? And write out what are the major decisions you have to make. Make yourself a list and then prioritize. You know, I need to make these 10 decisions today. Let me make sure I get these five done because these absolutely have to get done. You know, think about the time element in conjunction with how important or how urgent that is. Um, And then another one is delegate. (laughs) You know, if you can delegate some of your decisions, go for it. You know, there is nothing better than days I come home and I ask my partner, I ask my son, like, hey, what do you want for dinner? And they have an answer. (laughs) You know, it's just, it is a breath of relief because it's a decision I no longer have to make. So delegating those things out can also help reduce that fatigue. Yeah, I love that last one, actually. I feel like delegating is so underestimated. Like, we underestimate the power of delegating. I feel like if you go out for dinner with your friends and you're all like, where should we go? And you're the one who organized it. I feel like sometimes being like, hey, where do you guys want to go? takes like a lot of pressure off of things and something we might not even realize we do every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being cognizant of the decisions that we're making you know, that might be enough for some people to help them go, oh, gosh, I'm making more decisions than I expected I was. Yeah. Uh, You know, so the awareness of that is something that has to happen in order to delegate those decisions. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that the decision making process is something that can be streamlined? So, you know, there's there's always talks about whether we can be more efficient or faster, you know, but I, I think there's something to be said for the messiness of human cognition and that, you know, sometimes it's okay to take time. It's okay to slow down and have a breath before diving in again. So I would say probably someone, yes, is going to find a way to streamline and make decision efficient. But I think there's also purpose and progress in taking a slower approach when you can. Yeah. And what does a slower approach mean? It means not rushing to make gut decisions just because you have to have something done. You have to go get something done. If there is any possibility of like delaying for even a moment, you know, that just that breath, that moment there might be enough to make you see another possibility or see another option. You yeah. know, we we live in a world that moves so quick and so fast, you know, and it it can feel like we have to rush to do everything. And sometimes it's better to just slow down a little bit. Yeah. So would you say that sometimes taking time to think about a decision you have to make could also change the decision itself? Absolutely. If you make a, so let's say you are upset about something and you know, you have a choice to deal with it right that second, the choices you make when you're upset may not be the same choices you make when you're calm and you're rational. And that, that moment, that pause you take lets you step back from the emotional aspect of the decision making into a more logical view of the decision making 
And yeah. so it helps you see those possibilities that emotion may have clouded you. Yeah. So would you say even separating yourself from that decision for a while and just experiencing other things and then coming back to it would be a good strategy? Absolutely. If you do not have to make a decision in the moment, I would argue most decisions would probably benefit from a little bit of uh, separation. Um, now that said, if you're like starving and you're hungry and you need to eat something because your glucose <laughs> is super low and it's making you cranky, don't delay that decision. Go have a snack, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you can delay some decisions, um, that's actually really valuable because, again, it gives you that option to think things through. 100%. I feel like anything to do with food should be addressed ASAP, like as <laughs> soon as possible. Do not delay that at all. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes giving ourselves a bit of space helps a lot, especially for me as someone who really wants solutions as soon as possible. That can be hard to do. How would you go about being okay with giving yourself that space? You know, that is such a a great question because a good bit of us would probably just try to like power through it and yeah. just get things done and like like go 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 but I think we have to be okay with giving ourselves a moment and again feels a bit pop psychology yeah. but like <laughs> the, the thought of giving yourself grace is actually a pretty good one and it's rooted in a lot of um, religious ideology. It's rooted in a lot of self-help. Um, it's also rooted in health psychology as well in that, you know, giving yourself the space and the the bandwidth to deal with these things helps you deal with them in better, more adaptive ways. Yeah, for sure. I do love the turn we've taken. I feel like we've gone a bit deeper, which is great. Um, and I'd love to ask you what are some common mistakes people make when trying to reduce their um, decision fatigue? Yeah, so powering through it is, again, you know, that that number one kind of uh, thing that we we should just pause and step back away from if we can. Um when we power through things, we were not nearly, let me think of a better way to say this actually. Um, when we power through, we can get careless or we can miss details or we can make rash decisions, you know, that may not benefit us in the long term. Um, and so to kind of counteract that, we use what's called deliberate calmness. And so deliberate calmness is used to in everything from treating anxiety to addressing behavioral issues to classroom management to uh, delivering bad news. <laughs> you know, deliberate calmness is a the when we take a stressful situation, the more stressful it is, the slower and more methodical we should be and how we should react. And so it's almost if someone is ramping up and their anxiety is getting really, really high, your demeanor, your volume, your approach should go lower and slower. And it's a way to help mirror that what we call that deliberate calmness to help de-escalate the situation. And we can use that when we hit decision fatigue as well. You know, we if we're feeling like we're go, go, go and we have to make all these choices, 
we can use that as a mental cue for ourselves to step into deliberate calmness, slowing ourselves down, taking that extra time um, and being really methodical in our approach. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that the more anxious you feel around a certain decision you have to make, that's an indication of like you needing to take more time and more space before you visit that decision again? Absolutely. So if we return to the example of getting a job in a new city, you know, we have to consider, we have to do a little bit of problem solving here. Do we know anyone in the city? Do we know the cost of living there? Are we going to like it? Does it fit our culture and our lifestyle and all of these things that we have to consider? And when we start to get anxious and overwhelmed by the decision, I believe, you know, using that process of deliberate calmness, it is an anxiety treatment, you know, it is a a behavioral thing we can do to help slow ourselves down and get out of anxiety. it's another thing we can adopt in that decision-making when we are feeling super stressed. Yeah, and in those high-pressure, super stressful situations, what are some tips we can use to stay mentally sharp? Yeah, so this is actually a place where bringing other people in is really beneficial. The more diverse uh, ideas and ways of thinking we can bring into the conversation, the more unique options are going to become available to us. And actually, the better, more um, more likely to be positive outcome will result from it. And so there's some research showing that when you have diversity of thought and diversity of decision processes, which is how we think through information, how we take in information, um, better outcomes result from those group decisions. And so this is one of those things, if you have a really big decision, you're anxious about it, just like moving to that new city, talk to people about it, bring in their perspective, allow them to give you know, what their insight would be. It doesn't mean you have to take their opinion as 100% gold, but you know, give them space to provide their thoughts on it and that'll help you see other possible solutions. Yeah, I love that. I feel like reaching out is always another great way to get perspective and also understand the situation or whatever you're trying to make a decision about a bit better. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And I'd love to move into asking you about how taking away choice is not always the solution to decision fatigue. We had a bit of a chat about this before. We did, yes. So this is something that came up every time I search for anything on decision fatigue one of the recommendations that inevitably comes up is like, well, if we don't want to deal with decision fatigue, we just don't make choices anymore. We just have something make a choice for us and that's, it'll be great. But, you know, the the example that comes out of this is the movie The Matrix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they live in a simulation and one of the scenes, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, <laughs> um, but in one of the scenes, the the creator had said, you know, we had tried a version of this world where choice was taken away and people were miserable. And like that's actually based in scientific evidence. You know, when choices are taken away, people are actually even more depleted than when they had to make their decisions. And so there's this kind of tenuous balance that we have to keep in we don't want to make too many decisions to the point that we wear ourselves out and we can't make decisions. 
but we love freedom because you know we're humans and we like choice choice is not necessarily bad um as with most things in life moderation is key yeah and it's such a paradox to be in I guess because while we do love our freedom and we do love having choices like I know I always love to have the choice and be able to determine for myself where I want to go with something but having that choice is also so much pressure and I guess that's what could lead to the fatigue as well Mm -hmm. absolutely you imagine you have to make you know five ten twenty high stress decisions a day and not only do you have to make them for yourself, so you have to make them for the people around you. Yeah. You know, this is this is a problem that we face in, you know, high stress classrooms, um, you know, and high stress behavioral situations, um, in emergency rooms, in medical contexts, uh, nurses deal with this, everyone in the ER and driving the ambulances deals with it. This is something that if we had a simple solution, I feel like we would already be doing it. But this is this is something we have to practice and we have to to build in room to get better with. Yeah, I love that. I feel like practice makes perfect as cringy as that sounds, but I guess it's true. You know, my son's teacher actually up gave me a new phrase to use because Ooh. practice doesn't actually make perfect. Practice That's makes true. progress. And I I think that's a really cool way to look at it. Yeah, I feel like that is much better, actually, than practice makes perfect. I feel like this idea of perfection is also very stressful. So progress is a better (laughs) word. I agree. I agree. The the expectations we hold ourselves to, you know, it adds a layer of complexity. So if we don't have to be perfect, that's a sigh of relief in many ways. I agree. That is a good one. So what are some effective strategies we can use to help prioritize decision making to enhance problem solving? Um, So I'm going to pull a little bit from uh, organizational literature for this one is, are you familiar with what's called an Eisenhower matrix? I've heard of Eisenhower, but I have not heard of the matrix. Got it. Okay, so the Eisenhower matrix was developed by President Eisenhower, actually, when he was serving in the military. It is how he organized which decisions he had to make in which order. And so what he did was he has a four-quadrant matrix, and there's two two axes, you know, on the y-axis is you know the level of importance of the task and on the x-axis is how urgent is this how quickly does it need to get done right you know so if you look at the quadrant that has urgent and important those are the ones that you need to do like right now these are tasks with deadlines or they have consequences that you're trying to minimize right Then there's the important but not urgent quadrant. And this is kind of the box we want to live in, especially at work. You know, these are the things we know need to get done. They're super important, but there's not some time sensitivity associated with it. There's not some dependency on getting it done right this second. So those are most of the tasks you'll face at work. So it's tasked with unclear deadlines, but it's going to contribute to success. Then you have the not important tasks. And this is where we have to delegate the ones that are urgent, you know, give them to someone else for them to go solve. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, and then the last one, if it's not urgent and it's not important, just delete it. We don't have to do it. We can skip it. It's fine. Throw it away. <laughs> Get rid of that one. Yep. Awesome. So how do you go about approaching that? Like, do you start with anything first or? Yeah, you can start with literally just a sheet of paper and draw yourself, you know, an X and a Y axis across that creates four boxes. And as you start thinking about what you have to get done, you can start assigning it to the box where it actually fits. And then once you're done assigning everything to this matrix, you can look inside each box and start, of course, with the urgent and important box because that one, you know, fires, got to deal with them right away. Um, but you could take a look through that list and say, is this really a fire? Do I really have to do this right now? Is it really my responsibility? Is it something I can delegate? And if it's something I can delegate, kick it down to that lower box, the lower matrix, because it's not important. You can delegate it to someone else. Um, but if it is, you know, a list of 10 things in this urgent box, you're going to need to get help. Uh, and this is something that we talk about in management a whole lot is, you know, ruthless prioritization of what we have to get done right now. And so, you know, if my employees come to me and they say, I have 30 things in my urgent box that I have to get done, it's like, okay, let's sit down and go through it. And then I'll help them develop a system for evaluating, like, is this actually urgent? Is this something that you have to do? Um, but it's that process of working together, again, bringing in that diversity of thought, the diversity of decision-making that really helps move us towards a positive solution. Yeah, so compartmentalizing our decisions sometimes can help us see them a bit clearly and understand if we're actually gonna fatigue ourselves by having so many things to do. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I'd love to move into a bit more about your approach to things more personally. So this is our practices experiment debrief section. So my first question for you is, is there a practice that you use to help improve your problem solving? Oh, yes. Uh, so I, this year, at the of the year of experimentation, um, <laughs> So this year's experiment is, you know, slowly cutting down on what I feel I am responsible for doing. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I still, I'm still a scientist. I still publish constantly. I still do these talks, you know, I still do all the things, but I'm doing it at a much slower, more casual pace. It doesn't feel quite so um, urgent to me as it has in the past now. I can still share knowledge. I can still be the educator and the scientist I know I am, um, but I can do it at a much more casual rate because I have the space and bandwidth to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's been, you know, a very, very interesting shift. And it's actually allowed me the space to think through problems a bit more deeply than I may have done in the past because I didn't have the time or the the energy to devote towards it. Yeah, amazing. And what are some of the positive things that have come out of this for you or anything that stands out? Um, more time hanging out with my son. And yeah. that's, you know, he's a teenager now. So, you know, that's probably doesn't enjoy it quite as much as I do. But you know. <laughs> um, but I get more time to focus towards like my hobbies. Um, getting offline a whole lot more has yeah. been, you know, just phenomenal. 
uh, I've been able to dedicate time towards my physical health and start, you know, exercising and training again, you know, getting back into shape where I can go hiking without issues because I love being outdoors. So it's just, it's created space for a lot of other things I hadn't thought of in a while. Beautiful. And are there any challenges that come along with this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I I am a, I will own the fact that I am a very driven individual. I am accomplished and goal-oriented through and through. I have a PhD to show for it, you know. That's like that. I am willfully stubborn about getting things done. Yeah. Um so this is my challenge is having to be okay in the moment, not planning out the next five or 10 things, you know? And so that's been the thing I've been working on. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that as a fellow stubborn person. I feel like just the (laughs) idea of relinquishing and not making another list of decisions I have to make is really hard to step back from. I do love a good list myself. I feel like (laughs) it de-stresses me making the list. I could honestly make a list for anything in my life, but yeah. Yeah, It's like, it's your, you're extending your working memory by writing it down on paper. You no longer have to keep it in a brain. You already got it on paper. Exactly. And it's in a nice, neat little list and you can see everything in order. It's great. (laughs) and do you have like a certain time you like to do these things or is it more sporadic um this is more of an ongoing exercise okay so it's you know i don't dedicate or devote specific time to it but i do allow myself the thought of it you know when it happens to creep back into my head Yeah, awesome. And how have you found that this practice has improved your productivity and perception in life? I think it's improved. Well, I don't know if I'd say it would improve my productivity. I If I reflect on this for a bit, my productivity hasn't actually decreased. I still get the same amount of work done at my job. I still hang out with my family and my friends, same, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, definitely more with my son. But I am finding my productivity hasn't changed. It's just changed what it's applied to. Okay. Um, so it's almost, almost like a static amount of productivity. It's just allocated differently. <laughs> Interesting. So it's more of like a reorganization. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And is this something you would recommend for everyone or is it more of a thing you have to find what works for you? I honestly, I think it's something you have to find what works for you. I, I'm i not a, a self-help guru. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> a, I'm not a pop psychologist. I just happen to really love decision-making literature and research. Um, and I have found these ways of applying it to my own life have impacted me in these ways. And I hope sharing that helps someone else too. Beautiful. Well, I can say for certain that it has helped me so far, so I'm sure it'll help others as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. 
Um, I'd love to get into our open mic section now. So we open up this space for you to just talk about anything you would like to. It could be about our topic today in decision making or it could be genuinely anything. So the the direction decision making has taken recently has changed a little bit with the sudden explosion of these large language models like ChatGPT and Bard and you.com and you know what's the what's the phrase hashtag not sponsored <laughs> you know <laughs> no endorsements for anyone here sorry guys um, but you know one of the things we find with these large language models is that we have as humans the urge to just kind of outsource a lot of things when possible and so it's called an automation bias it's again another way we make decisions and the way we reason through things um, it's a mental shortcut we use when we can look at technology and see the way it's going to make our lives seemingly easier simpler more productive whatever buzzword you want to throw in there right so the the interesting way the research has kind of shifted now is thinking about, you know, when we're using these large language models, are these demonstrating biases and heuristics? Do they make the same kind of decision-making, you know, quote-unquote mistakes that we make in traditional decision-making experimental paradigms? And some of the research I recently published with my colleague, Dr. Fuller, actually is a demonstration of these decision-making biases in large language model output. And so the thing we caution about with this is that we may want to, we may have a very strong urge to adopt these tools and technologies and just kind of trust them at the outset, okay? Because mm -hmm. we, we have that bias. We want to be able to do that. And the thing we have to remember is that these kind of tools and technologies have the potential to be misinformation super spreaders. The outputs it gives back are not always factual, they're not always correct, and they can amplify biases in ways that we may or may not even realize that they're doing. And these biases go from everything from discrimination to political ideology to general cognitive biases that we demonstrate in that paper you know, things like insensitivity to numbers and how that can influence our decisions. Um, so this is something that I've started to look at a bit more deeply throughout this year is how do we use this technology in ways that actually does help us outsource some of the decisions. And the, the answer we've arrived at so far is that we cannot outsource decision making to these tools but we can use it as a decision aid, as another input of information. Again, coming back to that diversity of thought and process, it's another way for us to gather information to make the decisions ourselves. And so that's something we've been working on. You can find more about it at my website. It's uh, elenatalwoy.com. If you have questions, you can always find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, you know I'm always perpetually answering questions and messages on there. So um, feel free to reach out. I'm always excited to talk about this. I am a perpetual uh, geek or nerd or whatever other <laughs> word you want to throw in here. I will own it. I love science and I love talking about these things with people who just want to learn about science. That's awesome. And I feel like 
like bringing up ChatGPT and those sort of platforms is so interesting because I feel like it's sometimes used as like this ultimate resource that could never be wrong. And it is just a tool to aid decision making. And what's really interesting is that um, at my university, it's now being allowed um, to be used during like assignments. So as long as you say that you're using it, you can use it to help you, you know, make decisions about what you want to write about or actually have it write it for you, which I find is really interesting how it's being integrated as more of a permanent tool now. I love that. And I think it's such a positive step forward. You know, the initial response was like, oh, this is going to be used to cheat and to plagiarize and think. But, you know, I think we were thinking about it the wrong way at the beginning. And now we're seeing like, oh, this is another tool. This is another way to search. This is another way to gather information. But it's still just a tool. It's not you know, it's not an intelligent being that you can carry on a conversation with, even though it seems like it is because of that natural language output. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a tool. And I love that it's being adopted as a tool, but just remember, don't, don't let it make the decisions for you. Yeah. I feel like that's really great and important to stipulate as well, because at the end of the day, it's your ideas that you're putting into it with the hope of a certain outcome. So I feel like the first time I heard that it was being implemented into my university, I was like, oh, this is a great chance to, you know, cheat or essentially have an assignment become way easier than it needs to be. But then I realized that like, you're actually needing to have a lot of input in order to get the kind of output you want, like an assignment worth of, you know, information. Absolutely. And then the whole process of fact checking it, I actually love that that is part of the assignments because fact checking is so important in today's day and age where there's so much misinformation available. If you don't learn the basic tenets of fact checking, the basic tenets of, of literally researching, you know, it's not just doing a Google search. It's not just typing in a, a question into a box and getting an answer. Research is a true valid form of seeking out information and verifying the data that you're getting. And so I think using these tools is another way to exercise that. It's just going to be beneficial going forward. 100%. I feel like through the fact-checking process and that being integrated into education, I've learned not to trust the first thing I read on Daily Mail or something like that. So <laughs> it's become really yeah. integral. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your amazing insights with us. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Awesome. Um, you've already stated where we can go to find you. So we have Dr. Talboy's details in the description as well, in case you missed that. But to everyone listening, please don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. And we'll see you guys next time. You have been listening to Work in Progress the Personal Productivity Science Insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pp.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. 
I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.